You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. And open up your Bible uh, to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 20 uh, today. We're in the next to last chapter of this book that we've been going through for quite a while um, but if many of you were here last night for our art gala uh, that we do once a year. It's our 11th one. And I uh, wanted to give you an update on that before we uh, get into the, the Word of God. Uh, but thank you. I want to say first a thank you to the many of you, uh, countless in number of you who uh, donated things, who came last night either to just look around and enjoy fellowship or especially to give towards Jared and Megan and their family as they get set to return to Tanzania in just a few months from now, and if you were here at the beginning of the service, Jake kind of jokingly mentioned that I, I wanted to be the one who shared the amount that we raised, and that is true. I did want to. There's multiple reasons I wanted to be the one, beyond just selfishness, which is probably in there, uh, true confession. Uh, but there's, there's another reason I'll tell you in, in just a minute, but... Uh, I got to tell Jared this just a minute ago, and I've only told one or two other people the, the amount that we raised, but um, wanted to let you know that as a church family and guests and people that came and donated, that last night we raised over $16,000 to give to the food. Uh, so thank you to all of you who gave. That is an amazing blessing to them, and I know they will use it well as they uh, get to go set uh, back to Tanzania and to continue the work that they started years ago there and now they get to, to re-engage and so uh, grateful for you grateful for the events team in particular they did a wonderful job I told several of them that it was a weight off of mine and the staff's shoulders this year this was the first year we had them doing that and so a huge thanks to them as well but part of why I wanted Jake to mention at the beginning of the service the art gala and kind of tease you with uh, the amount that was yet to come and to have me at least have you wait for 30 40 minutes to hear it uh, was because I think there's something in us as human beings that when we have good news to share we are eager to share it like we want to just as, this, as soon as it comes in one ear we want to go out our mouth and go tell somebody so we'll often call somebody or text somebody or if we're with somebody we'll go tell them hey did you hear this and we'll, we'll share it with them there's something about good news it's not the same with bad news hopefully uh, but we have this eagerness to share good news we, we post it on Instagram or on Facebook or we call text we do all these things and it is hard for us to sit on good news it's hard for us to wait to say it to people but the reason I, I did that and that I wanted to mention that instinct uh, to us and draw it to mind of even how we operate and finding it hard to wait to share good news is because we're going to read this morning and, and hear from God's word the story of the resurrection, of how it happened. And one thing that has struck me over and over as I've prepared for this is thinking about why God had it that morning unfold the way that it did. Jesus had come to life, like never to die again, the ultimate good news you could ever have. And rather than just calling uh, angels, calling a meeting or something, having all the disciples there instantly and just saying, guys, I'm alive. Like he does it very deliberately. He does it very slowly. He doesn't even show himself in our text today. Uh, we're not even going to actually see Jesus in our text today. He, he lets details unfold. He lets the things start to slowly unwind and slowly start to be known um, by his disciples that Sunday morning. And it's counterintuitive to us because if, if I was Jesus, which is 
like heresy to say because none of us can. But I would have been saying that as soon as I could to as many people as I could. But Jesus slowly reveals the truth of his resurrection that morning. And he, he continues to in time as, as we unfold it. Um, but if you were here last Sunday, we've been going through the book of John for quite a long time. But if you were here last Sunday, uh, we looked at the burial of Jesus. We looked at what happened to Jesus' body after he died upon the cross. How it was uh, cared for, how it was laid in the grave, and how as those people were getting ready for the Sabbath day, trying to hurry that Friday to get his body cared for and off the cross and in the grave, God the Father was preparing for Sunday morning. Uh, he was setting up details to make it very clear, very evident that Jesus was indeed, having been dead, was now alive. And so as we look at our text today, these first 10 verses of John chapter 20, we're going to see that author of the story do this slow reveal, as many good storytellers do. This slow reveal, rather than just saying it all at once, we're going to see how he starts this slow reveal of the resurrection of Jesus. Where we're going to pick up here in John 20 totally skips over what happened on Saturday. Uh, we last ended John 19 at the end of the day, Friday, as they buried Jesus. And then we know from the other texts of Scripture that they rested. His disciples, as they were supposed to on their Sabbath day, they rested on Saturday. And now where we're going to pick up is going to be on that Sunday morning, that famous and rightfully so Sunday morning where Jesus came back to life. So follow along with me the first 10 verses of John chapter 20. And then we'll see uh, what the Lord would have to say to us through this text today. So John recorded this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. This is the word. And we're going we're gonna to do our own version of slowly unveiling, un revealing the resurrection. We're going to cover his resurrection over the span of a few Sundays uh, starting today. But we see in this passage, I, I think you see the beginning of, I would say it this way if you're a note taker. You see the beginning of Jesus progressively and deliberately making his resurrection known. He's starting to progressively and deliberately, very much on purpose, start to make his resurrection known in certain ways. And keep in mind, we already mentioned this, but Jesus is already risen from the dead as we come to this text. He's already alive. We don't know where he is as Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. We don't know where he is as she goes to get John and Peter and bring them. We don't know where he is when they come to the tomb. I like to imagine that, that maybe he was standing nearby watching this. He's somewhere on the earth. 
Uh, maybe he's somewhere nearby watching this happen. But the, the resurrection of Jesus, it shouldn't necessarily have been a surprise to people. We saw even in this text in verse 9 that there had already been scripture written that had said the Messiah would die and come back to life, right? There was already God-given text that they would have had and read that said he's going to come alive again. And Jesus, if you read through John, the 19 chapters before this, many times had told his disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to be lifted up, meaning I'm going to be raised from the dead on the third day. He had said these things to them many times, and so it shouldn't necessarily have been a surprise. It was foreshadowed, but it was also directly predicted and told that this would happen. But when Jesus finally is raised from the dead, this most monumental event in history, he is slow to reveal it to people. He's deliberate in how he makes it known to people. He he progressively reveals the truth that he's alive. He doesn't, if he was nearby, when Mary comes that morning, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, if that was me, I would have been like the ultimate surprise party ever, like jumping out, surprise, I'm alive. But he doesn't. Like he lets her see certain things. Then she goes and gets John and Peter. Then they come back and he doesn't do it again. He lets them keep seeing things. He lets them start like noticing things and picking up on details that that start to trigger them in to the resurrection. It's kind of like I can imagine Jesus kind of making like Hansel and Gretel style this bread come breadcrumb trail like kind of giving them clues uh, but not yet showing them the real thing not yet revealing himself to them we'll see that next sunday as he actually finally appeared to mary magdalene but it's like jesus is leading them along leading them towards certain conclusions and and letting things click in their minds and hearts before he actually finally shows himself to them that is fascinating to me and so i want us to walk back through this text and see early on that sunday morning what does he have them see like what is how he did this on purpose like he he orchestrated this way on purpose it just didn't happen well like i'll i'll kind of just see what happens like he did this on purpose the way he did so what did he let them see how did he progressively make himself known how did he deliberately make himself known how does that slow reveal start so i want to show you a few things from this text ways that he does that the first thing i want to point out to you from the beginning of this text is the first thing that he has any of them see is the stone rolled away. Uh, that The stone is not even mentioned by John yet, as mentioned in the other gospel writers. It was this stone that had been laid in front of the tomb. And we know even from Matthew that it had been sealed uh, by the authorities there to keep people from going in to steal the body. But there had been this massive stone rolled in front of the opening of that grave that Jesus had been laid in. And our scene starts, John records this for us, with one person coming to the tomb, Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb and as she makes her way to the tomb early that sunday morning while it's still dark she begins her her trek there towards the tomb and she gets there she knew where there had been many there that night on friday who had seen where he'd been buried she was one and as she gets there she sees that the stone has been moved that the stone has been rolled away it seems like from what we have recorded for us that she didn't take the time to go look in 
and see what was in there or what wasn't, but that, that she turned and ran, that she, we don't know uh, what attitude she had, what tone she said her words to Peter and John, but she runs to get Peter and then the disciple whom Jesus loved, who we've seen many times in this book, that seems to very clearly refer to John himself, the guy who's writing this. So he's a character in this story. She runs to get them and tell them. She tells them that Jesus' body has been stolen. All she has seen so far is that that stone has been moved. She's connecting dots, I think, thinking, man, somebody stole this body. And that's what she runs and goes and tells Peter and John. So this is the first thing that Jesus lets someone see that day, is the stone having been rolled away. And I've heard this said many times before, but I think I would like to say it to you, is that the stone did not have to be moved for Jesus to get out of the tomb. Jesus, we're going to see later in this chapter, like if you look at verse 19, Jesus in his resurrected form can come into rooms that have locked doors. I don't know how he does that, but in his glorified body, he can go through locked doors. He can go in places and go through places that we couldn't. The stone did not need to be removed like so the resurrected Jesus could sneak out. But it, it was open so people could see that it was empty. It was open so other people could know he is not there. And so, but he, the stone has been moved nonetheless, and I think he did it so Mary would see it. And apparently the stealing of bodies, that's not a common thing in our culture, but apparently at least that was common enough that in their culture that when Mary sees the stone gone, her mind instantly jumps to the conclusion, man, somebody stole Jesus' body. So this must have been a culturally somewhat normal thing. And she jumps to a conclusion, assumes that's what's the case. It's a category in her mind that she's concerned about. And she understandably runs and goes and tells Peter and John, and while she jumped to a wrong conclusion, her alarm is more than understandable, isn't it? I mean, if you are walking by yourself to a tomb in the dark, you see this, this is before electricity, all these things, you see the stone is gone, I would have been turned around to run as well. It, it drew to mind a, an experience I had when I worked at a church in Ohio for a few years before I worked here. There was one morning, I, I got there first to our office, and we had just a small staff, so I was the first one that got there. And I unlocked the door, went in, and I noticed that my office door, which I always locked, uh, was popped open. And I was like, whoa. Like, and nobody had been there. I had been there the night before. I knew nobody would have had any reason to be in my office. So I turned around. I am, I am a wuss. I will say that. I turned around. And I don't remember if I ran, but I got out of that building as fast as I could, and rightfully so. We found out later that somebody had broken into the church, uh, and they had taken a few things, nothing large. Um, but I would have done what Mary did. I would have turned and ran. I would have been uh, going to find Peter and John as well. But so that, that's the first thing that, that Jesus lets be seen is not himself. He lets Mary see this stone has been moved. And we're going to see that the conclusions she jumped to were not accurate, but, but there is something more to be seen. As, as Peter and John now come to the tomb, and she's going to return uh, shortly thereafter, uh, we're going to see her again next Sunday. We're going to see that when they finally look into the tomb, they start to see certain things or not see certain things, right? So we're going to see how does this slow reveal continues. They saw the stone, Mary did, saw it rolled away. But then if you look through verses 3 through 5, we see this unfold, that Peter and John, these two disciples, 
they take off running. Mary had run to go tell them the, this news of the body she thought was stolen, and now they're running. Early on a Sunday morning, I don't know if she woke them up or, or, or what state they were in, but they get up and run as fast as they can to get to this tomb. They knew where Jesus had been buried as well. And we see that the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is the guy writing this, John, that he gets there first. Uh, I don't know that that's just because he was faster. It's probably because he was younger. Uh, Peter was probably a little bit older than him. But I find it humorous at minimum that John made sure that recorded in the Holy Scripture that he beat Peter in a foot race to the tomb. I don't know why exactly he included that other than to just add detail. I was there. I saw this. Um, but, But he was one. The guy who wrote this was one running there that morning. I saw some of these things unfold. And so he gets there first. Right? He gets to the tomb and he looks in. Like he looks in and he sees the linen cloths. And, and, but he doesn't go in. And we don't know why, but he waits there. We don't know how long or short the wait was, how slow Peter was. Uh, but Peter finally gets, in the, gets to the tomb and he goes, in typical Peter fashion, goes right in. Uh, goes right into the tomb. And they both see, this is what I would say is the second piece of evidence that Jesus gives to them. They both see an empty tomb. They see an empty tomb. There is no body in the tomb. When, when they go into the tomb, Peter goes in and, and uh, John goes in behind him. There is no body of Jesus there. It, it is empty. The, the, the tomb is supposed to have a dead person in it. It's supposed to have their friend in it. That's where they saw him be buried just a couple days before this. But his body is not there. And so what Mary had thought may be true was not uh, that, that his body had been stolen. They, they knew that this tomb was empty, that, that Jesus' body was not there. And John saw this with his own eyes. And I think Jesus had them see this, and John recorded this for us, uh, in part so we could understand the mind of these disciples early on that Sunday, but also to be instructive to us as people who live a few thousand years later. I think this, this empty tomb was important first, even before they saw the resurrected Jesus. Seeing the empty tomb was important for those men and women that day. It was important for them to see that the tomb was empty. Because later that day, they're going to see Jesus alive. And if they had not seen that that tomb was empty, you could understand how there's angels and stuff happening uh, the, throughout this day. You could imagine how when they start to see Jesus come into locked rooms, and when they, when they see some of these things, they could maybe have started to jump to the conclusion, man, we are just either losing our minds, going crazy, or we're seeing a vision, or we're not actually seeing the resurrected Jesus. But he has them see that the tomb is empty, that his body is not there, so that when they see his body alive and moving and talking again later that day, they know it's him, flesh and blood, him. That the physically he has been raised from the dead. He's not an angel. He's not some lookalike. This just happens to be the case today, but my twin brother is here this morning uh, from California and his family. Uh, but you could imagine that there could even get to wild speculations that you've, I've seen this in movies and whatnot where one twin does something and people don't know they have a twin and then the other one shows up and pretends to be them. People could have thought all sorts of weird stuff that Jesus was doing. Maybe he had a secret twin brother or something like that. Any sort of wild speculation speculations people may have come up with about what actually happened to Jesus and who this person was that they now started to see is erased when they see that the tomb is empty. 
that that body is not there. It was important for them to see that before they saw the resurrected Jesus. But this is, a, this is an important piece of evidence. It's an important part of Jesus revealing himself and his resurrection, not just for them that day, but for us as well. No body of Jesus has ever been found. Nobody, uh, no body, physical body of Jesus has ever been produced. There is no place on the face of the earth where someone can point to and say, there is the body or the bones of Jesus. Here is proof to you that he has not been raised from dead. His body was laid here. It continues to be there. No body has ever been produced. But that would have been the simplest way for the Jewish leaders to squash this early rising of Jesus' disciples, wouldn't it? Would have been to produce the dead body of Jesus. Say, look, this guy you're saying is alive. He's right here. Like, this is his body. I'll show it to you decaying and, and getting disgusting now. This is his body. Stop pulling this lie that he's alive. He is not. He is right here. That would have been the easiest, simplest way to squash this uprising, this, this growing Christian movement, this following of Jesus and claiming that he was raised from the dead. But they couldn't do it because there was no body to show. The, the tomb was empty. They went to the place where they knew the body had been, Probably hoping, the enemies probably hoping it was still there so they could show it to people, but it was not there. It wasn't, they weren't even capable of producing it. There are cemeteries all over our state and our country and our world where famous people are buried, where their bodies or their remains are, and where people come to flock to, to pay homage to them, or I don't know what all they're trying to do when they go to their grave, but there is no burial site of Jesus where there is a body. We don't make pilgrimages to go see where Jesus was buried because he was only buried for a couple of days. But he, he came alive again. His tomb that was known by people was empty. When I was in college at Taylor, uh, they're nearby in a very small town named Fairmount, Indiana, uh, which nobody hardly knows for anything. It's like a blip on the radar screen. Uh, many people actually do come to that town, believe it or not, because James Dean is buried there of Hollywood fame from the 1950s, the guy from Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, he died young in a car crash. But to the, people come from all over uh, to little Fairmount, Indiana, uh, to see where he is buried. But no Christian ever will go to the grave of Jesus. They're, they're, because it is empty. And they saw it empty. There is no physical body there. And Jesus wanted them to see it that morning. And he wants us to know his body is nowhere to be found on this planet. It is at the right hand of God the Father right now. And someday he will return to set up a physical kingdom that will last forever. But they saw the empty tomb that morning. So Jesus let them see the stone had been rolled away. That's the first thing. He let them see that the tomb was empty as they start to come to the actual tomb itself. The third thing that, that they see, uh, I would say this way. I was trying to think of a way to say this that was not corny. Uh, but when they get in, when they go to this tomb, and when Peter finally actually goes in it, and John goes in there with them, it wasn't actually empty. Like there was no body there, but there was something in there, wasn't there? Like, and John makes special attention to, and Jesus did this on purpose. He left some things in the tomb. 
He, he left claws there, and he left a face mask, a, a towel that would have been wrapped around his head. He left it there. So it, the tomb was bodiless, but it was not empty. And so he lets them see some things as they start to go in. You see this in verses 6 and 7. As Peter arrives there to this, the tomb, and he stoops in, it, would have been, it wouldn't have been a big door. It probably would have been a smaller thing that they just need to be able to get in to prepare the body and then to get back out. But he, he looks in to the, the opening, and he sees these linen cloths there, the same things that John saw when he first got there, the same things that were mentioned back in John chapter 19 that they had wrapped Jesus' body in. Uh, that was their burial custom of the Jews uh, to wrap bodies in these linen cloths. When, the, when Peter goes in and John goes in, they see those claws lying there where Jesus' body presumably had been. But they also see that face mask. They see it folded up even and, and set to the side. And Jesus had them see this on purpose. Like he could have done whatever he wanted to with those claws when he came back from the dead. But he left them there to be seen in a particular way by Peter and John and, and by others who would see and come to the tomb later. So these linen cloths that they see, they would have been wrapped around the body of Jesus. They've been mentioned back in verse 40 of the last chapter. We tend to think of like wrapping like mummies, like every body part is wrapped. It probably would have been more general, like his arms would have been uh, wrapped to his body. There would have been kind of a, a sheet almost or a few pieces of cloth that would have been wrapped around his body and tied around his feet. Uh, and then a, a cloth that was wrapped around his head. And those are the things that they see there. And the, again, we see that this piece of evidence was important. It was part of the slow reveal that morning for these disciples, but it was all, it's also important for us. Uh, for people who read this story and are called to believe it 2,000 years later, it's important for us. First, I want to show you how it's important for them. It was important for them even that morning to see these claws there. These linen claws, if you think about it, they would have made very clear that what Mary had originally said, her idea, her working idea of what happened that morning, that the body had been stolen, the fact that these claws were there, you know, that face cloth was there, would have been instant proof to them that that, that explanation was out the window, that, that his body was not stolen. Like, if you think about it, somebody who in the darkness of night would have been going to a tomb to steal a body, they would not have taken the time to unwrap the body, to, to leave it there laid out, to fold up the face cloth and like leave it sitting there. They would have just wanted to try to steal the body in the first place and just get it out of there for whatever their reason would have been. They would have just taken it as fast as they can. It would have taken probably a couple guys to do it, and they would have hightailed it out of there. And so that's this idea that Mary at least had initially, his body was stolen, and that many of them would have jumped to conclusions too as well. The fact that Jesus had those claws stay there, and that he folded up that face cloth was proof to them that morning as they stopped to think about it, his body wasn't stolen. Like something happened, but his body was not stolen. No thieves would have had time for that or desire for that to unwrap the body of a dead person and to only take it. So it had significance for them that morning. Jesus had them see that to show, hey, my body was not stolen. But this, this detail, I have dwelled on this much this week, of Jesus leaving these there, in particular then him folding that face cloth and leaving it in the tomb, I think has significance for us. 
to think about the resurrection of Jesus, add validity to it, and help us see the power of it and what was truly happening that morning. Because the folded face cloth in particular has significance for us now. See, Jesus' resurrection, I would say this, was the first of its kind. And that may sound weird to you if you've read through John before, because you know even Jesus raised people from the dead. Like, he had the power to do that, and he did it. Like, he raised he spoke, we'll re- look at this in a second, but he spoke and raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. But when Jesus came back to life that Sunday morning, it was the first of its kind. It, there was something different about it that I think we can see tied even to these claws being there. And that face cloth being folded and set to the side. I want to put up on the screen, if we could, a few verses from John chapter 11, a little bit earlier uh, in the Gospel of John. I'll read these for you in just a moment. But just so you know, before we read this, like what the context was, a while before this, Jesus, his friend, he had friends, right? He's a human being like us. He had a friend, Lazarus, who got sick and died. And he had known that his friend was sick. And people had called for him to come heal him. And Jesus had said no. Like Jesus had waited till he died and then he finally came. He finally showed up. And understandably, Lazarus, having now died, his, his friends are weeping. His family is weeping. Jesus' people that he loved are weeping. And Jesus himself, even a few verses before these, is, we see John record that he was weeping. But what happens is that Jesus tells them there is such echoes of John 20 from John 11. What happens right before this is that Jesus tells them to move the stone away from Lazarus' tomb. He tells them to move the stone away. And then this is what happens. It says that when he had said these things, this would have been so fascinating to see, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. But then it's not a period. Listen to what it says. His hands and feet bound with linen strips. And his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I had never thought about this before and what that actually looked like until I started thinking about how Jesus' resurrection was different and better. When Lazarus came out, I would have had my mind blown, like that this guy who had been dead for four days is now alive. I had never thought about the optics of what that probably actually looked like, okay? They're already warning Jesus in this passage, his body's going to stink, Jesus, like he's dead, and Jesus is like, I don't care, and tell this friend, come out of that tomb. But Lazarus had been buried just like Jesus had been buried. He'd been wrapped in these claws. He had probably had his arms tied to his body. He had probably had his feet tied. He had had this thing over his face. If you came to life like that, what would you look like coming out of that tomb? Like in kids' books and Bibles, we see like Lazarus like, hey, I'm here, everybody, like this, like raised from the dead. He probably, I will not try to, don't take pictures of this, but I will try to mimic this. He's probably like this and can't see it has his face covered, and it's like having to hop like this out of the tomb. And Jesus is like, Lazarus, you look like a fool. Like, unbind him and take off these claws. Like, let him be able to walk. He had just raised him from the dead. But he was still weak. Like, he was probably sore when he was raised from the dead. He, he needed people. He couldn't untie himself. 
even resurrected Lazarus. When Jesus was raised from the dead, we don't know exactly what happened, but reading this text, John 20, I think he came right up through the linen cloths. Like, he didn't even have to. He came through walls, right? Like, later, he came through locked doors. I think when he was raised from the dead, he came right through those cloths. Just set up right through them, right through the face cloth itself. When, when Lazarus came back from the dead, he was probably freaked out. Can't see, hobbling around, needing other people to help him, needing people to untie him. When Jesus raises, is risen from the dead, he is calm. He's deliberate. Like he, it, suppose, it seems like presumably sits up out of those linen cloths and that face cloth because his resurrection is different from anyone that ever preceded it and anybody that was raised from the dead in Acts or since then. His resurrection was different because he was never to die again. He, he wasn't just resuscitated to die again. He was raised from the dead never to die again. He had a glorified body. When he rose from that, he had been whipped and beaten and crucified and had nails through his body. But I guarantee you when he was raised from that, he was not sore. Like he, he was not in pain. He was not weak. He was not vulnerable. He was strong, having conquered death. And he just sits right up through those things. And then he takes the time to fold up the clothes. He takes the time, that face cloth in particular, he takes the time to fold it up. I don't know how Jesus folded clothes. The glorified Jesus would have folded perfectly. Folds the thing up, puts it to the side, and he wants them to see that. Because his resurrection, I would say this, it was the first of its kind, but it was not the last of its kind. Like He came back from the dead, and he wants us to know that someday we will come back from the dead as well. And he wanted us to see, he wanted them to see, he wanted us to see in the folding of that cloth that he was putting that away forever. Like he, he was not going to have to wear it again. His, his grave clothes were temporary. I, I read a lot of articles this week, it sounds morbid, but about how people dress the people that are dead. And there, there was articles over and over about how this is the last outfit you get to wear and just stupid stuff like this. Like, make sure you look good because uh, this is what you're going to rest in eternally. And I assure you, whatever grave clothes you wear when you die, you will not wear them forever. Like, you, you will not. Like, someday you will be raised either to eternal life or to eternal judgment. But when you are laid in the grave, which you will be if Jesus doesn't come back before like your grave clothes will be temporary just like Christ. Like you will be raised from the dead and Jesus wants you to know it. This was the start of a new creation that Sunday morning. It was more than just the start of a morning. Jesus had said, did you know this? Jesus had said over and over, I'm going to be raised on the third day. I'm going to be raised on the third day. I'm going to be raised on the third day. When John starts chapter 20, he doesn't say the third day after Jesus was crucified, he was raised from the dead. He, he says, Verse 1, now on the first day of the week, this happened. This was on purpose, he says it that way, because this was the start of a new creation. When, when Jesus came back to life, never to die again, it was the start of a new humanity. It was the start of an indestructible people of God that would, that would never die, that would be with him forever. And Jesus wants them, as they see that, and as we see it today, that full cloth, he wants us to know that if we're his people, we are part of that new creation. That we have bodies right now that decay and will die, but someday we won't. 
Like someday we'll be raised from dead and there'll be no more cemeteries to visit, no more hospitals to visit, no more pain to feel, but we'll have peace with our Lord forever. And so this can give us encouragement as we face the prospect of death ourselves. When we think of the folded grave clothes of Jesus and him putting those away forever, we know that someday our graves will have to wear our grave clothes. But someday they'll be taken off of us and put away forever and ours will be folded up. And I don't know what God will do with them. Maybe they'll burn up with the world. I don't know. You can read Revelation and figure all that stuff out. But your grave clothes will be temporary and you will be raised on the other side of death to live with our Lord forever. So it can give us hope as we face our own fears of death, but it can also give us comfort as we grieve the death of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether they're young or old or it's sudden or it's a a long-expected death, when we know that they are dying, we don't have to think that they are going to be laid in the grave forever. But they will be raised from the dead just as Jesus was raised from the dead. Just as I will be raised from the dead, they will be raised to eternal life forever. And it can give us hope and comfort even as we grieve. So Jesus shows them these grave clothes. He wants them to see it. He wants to see the effect that this had on them, the slow reveal. What effect did it have on Peter and John? What effect should it have on us? So if you look in verses 8 and 9, as these two disciples go into the tomb. Uh, John goes into the tomb after Peter, shows um, deference to him maybe, I don't know, but lets Peter go in first, and John goes in behind him. And then John records for us in verse 8, he says that, speaking of himself, he says that he saw and believed. Like he, he, he goes in the tomb with Peter, they, they see the cloth there, they see the face cloth folded up, and John says he saw it and he believed. Even before he sees the resurrected Jesus himself, he believes he's risen from the dead. We're not told um, by John what effect this had in this moment on Peter. We're left to kind of speculate. Did he believe? But by John highlighting his belief, he seems to indicate that, that Peter, at least not yet, that moment, that morning, isn't quite yet totally clicking that Jesus is alive. He's been raised from the dead, but it is clicking in John's mind and his heart that Jesus is alive. He's starting to connect the dots. And John has said over and over throughout this record of Jesus' life that the goal of Jesus coming, the goal of him being raised up on the cross and being resurrected from the dead was ultimately for us to believe in him. It wasn't just to to put on some show. It was for us to believe, us to have eternal life through that belief and the Son of God. And we see that happen in John's life right here. That, that he saw Christ die. He saw him die for his sins. And now he sees this empty tomb and that thing that has been long awaited in the book of John and said, this is what it's all leading to. It's so you believe. John said, that happened to me. Like when I saw these things, I believed that he was risen from the dead. And that is the effect that it ought to have on each of us. This, this is instructive, I think, when you have John and Peter side by side, and you see them seeing the same stuff that morning. They had been together for a few years. They've heard the same lessons. They've seen the same miracles. This morning, they're running together. I don't know how far ahead John was than Peter, but they're literally running together to the empty tomb. They see the same data. They get the same stuff going in their eyeballs, and one believes in that moment, and the other doesn't yet. 
That, that's interesting. That's instructive to us. I think it should encourage us. It's evidence to us that it is the Spirit of God who gives belief to people. Like they saw the same things. They, they heard the same things. They were in physically the same place. And one is believing in this moment and the other's belief is yet to come. So this should give encouragement to us that, that the belief of those we share the good news with, that the, their belief isn't contingent on me just getting some better argument for them or making sure I pile up more and more data for them. What will give them life is the Spirit of God. He will give them life. We are responsible to tell the good news and keep telling and keep loving and keep showing them what the good news of Jesus has done in our lives. But it is the Spirit of God that gives belief. And I think this story should also give us encouragement to not be afraid of tension in people when we start to share the gospel with them. Sometimes we think, man, I just need to tell them this one conversation, get some sentences out of my mouth about the good news of Jesus, and they're either just going to believe it or not, and then I'll move on. But you see in these disciples, there's this tension. There's there's this process, in a sense. There is a moment, obviously, where we go from being not forgiven to forgiven. But in experience, there's this, this growing of trying to soak in all these things, these monumental things that are, are being experienced and said to them about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. You see that it's this, this process, there's this tension in their hearts that some are quicker to believe, some are a little slower to believe. We'll see Thomas in a few weeks from now, for example. But do not be afraid as you're speaking the gospel to people, as you're sharing it with them. Don't be afraid when they start to have tension or they have questions, they have slowness toward belief. That's probably how you came to faith as well. And, and that's how Peter comes to faith. We need to be people who are patiently sharing the good news of Jesus, but confident the Spirit change hearts so it had this effect on john at least in this moment of producing belief seeing these things the spirit used those to give belief in his heart but this slow reveal of jesus continues we get little hints of it even in verse 10 the uh, the disciples went back to their homes Uh, I don't know what they were saying as they went back to their homes, but they go back to their homes, and Jesus is going to meet them later. He's going to talk to Mary Magdalene. We'll see next Sunday on Easter Sunday. But the story is far from over. Like that that morning, this wasn't the end of Jesus revealing himself. Uh, He was going to continue to deliberately, continue to progressively make his resurrection known. We see this in the, the scriptures as they unfold, as we read it. That that's exactly what he did. That he slowly, deliberately uh, revealed his resurrection. And we see that God's heart begins with one person here. It starts with John having belief. And next we're going to see Mary. We're going to see that there's this slow expansion in those early hours. And then it's just going to explode in the next numerous hours and days ahead. There's going to be countless people who start believing this testimony of the resurrection of Jesus, but it starts with one person here, and eventually, and it's still in process right now, but belief is going out further and further and further to all peoples and all nations. That's why we send the hood. That's why we have more people in our pipeline to send to other nations. This progressive revealing of, of Jesus' resurrection has continued through time, through generations that keep passing it down, but it's also continued around the globe, but it hasn't gone everywhere yet. And, like, we have a call to take the good news of the resurrection to people here in Warsaw and to, to Tanzania and to, to all the corners of the world where the gospel hasn't gone. But he's continuing to reveal himself, continuing progressively to reveal himself and make himself known. 
I want to do that even this morning, if I could. I want for a moment to, to talk to you who are unbelievers in the room. Like those of you who do not yet believe in Christ, who, who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, who don't believe that he died for your sins. I want to tell you very clearly, you someday will be raised from the dead. It's not just Christ's people who will be raised from the dead. The Bible is very clear. Jesus is very clear on this. Every human being will someday be raised from the dead. And you will face judgment by the one who created you. That is inescapable. That will happen. I want to ask you, are you prepared for that? Are you ready for that? Like to be judged by the one who created you. God has left a breadcrumb trail for you. And it started way before this story that we read about this morning. It started in eternity past when he decided to create you. When he decided to make you the way that he did. It, start, it continued, this revealing continued when God the Son willingly and gladly became a human being. And he came to this planet to, to live a perfect life that could get counted to you. And he went to the cross. He continued to drop breadcrumb trails and said, I will go to the cross and I will pay your sins. I will pay the full penalty for them upon the cross. I will suffer in your place. And he took the full penalty of those sins to show you his love. And he's continuing to drop breadcrumbs to draw you to himself, to show you about who he is. And he was raised from the dead. He continues to drop breadcrumb trails. He had people see this happen, to witness the resurrected Jesus, to see him and eat with him and hear from him and start telling the good news of it. And that good news has passed down through 2,000 years now almost and has crossed oceans and it has now come to me and I am telling it to you that Christ died for you and has been raised for you. And he offers you today forgiveness for your sins. He offers you today eternal life if you will turn and believe upon his son, Jesus. He offers that to you gladly. He would rejoice in you returning to him. He has offered you evidence and evidence and evidence. And now he he would want to speak to you to say, believe in me. I, I love you. I will receive you. Turn from your sins and put your trust in me. And he will be glad to receive you. He'll be glad to forgive you. And when you are raised up from the dead, just like Jesus was, you will be raised to eternal life with him. You'll be part of this kingdom that he will set up for eternity. Not because you deserve it, but because he gained it for you. And he gladly shares it with you. So I would call you to believe in the Lord Jesus. I love how Mary called him Lord here. Uh, Believe upon the Lord and he will save you. And for those of you who have long since believed in Jesus, I would encourage you to continue to let the Lord reveal the importance of his resurrection in your life. The the slow unveiling of the importance of the resurrection to you, believer, didn't just stop when you first believed. John believes, but Jesus still shows up to him again. Jesus still keeps talking to him. He keeps teaching him. He keeps investing in him. And we as people who already believe in the Lord Jesus need to continue to let the awe and wonder of the fact that he was raised from the dead sink into our hearts because we forget it. But let the fact that we worship on Sunday morning every single week be a reminder to you he's alive and well. 
He died for you. He's been raised for you one Sunday morning long ago. And someday he will raise you up. And someday he's going to return to set up his kingdom forever. We need to let him reveal his importance of his resurrection over and over and over again.